Let us pray. So, Father, even now we rejoice in Christ's victory over death, hell, and the grave. Our hearts are filled with thanksgiving and all. And now as we come to your word, Father, we ask that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Good to see all of you here this morning. I would invite you to turn in your Bibles or take out your devices with Scripture on them and turn to the ninth chapter of the book of Acts. Over the last two Sundays, we have focused on the power of the resurrected Jesus to transform people. And we've noted how the scriptural truth is continually proclaimed that Jesus Christ is unchanging. He is the same yesterday and today and forever. We've also talked about the reality that Christ's life-giving, life-transforming power is indeed at work as a reality in and through us who are walking in a living relationship with Jesus Christ. As St. Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, the 11th verse, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Last Sunday, we looked at St. John's encounter through a vision with the glorified Jesus in Revelation chapter 1. And we noted also that this was different than during the 40 days between Christ's resurrection and his ascension because it wasn't until he returned, ascended back to the right hand of the Father that he was restored to all of the fullness of his glory as the eternal son of God. And that this wasn't new glory, but it was a return to that, of that rightful glory to him that had been his through all time and eternity past. Because St. John's encounter with Jesus in Revelation 1 was with the ascended and glorified Christ, it was different in experience than even that experience of John and the other disciples when they encountered Jesus during the 40 days between his resurrection and ascension. Now today we're going to continue along in the same line of things with the same focus as we look to our reading from Acts chapter 9, which records the, tr- the dramatic conversion of Saul the Pharisee, who became the Apostle Paul. And this encounter with the resurrected and glorified Jesus resulted in a dramatic and radical transformation in his life and in his vocation. So let's begin by looking at Saul's encounter. The setting is quite familiar to many of us. Saul was a religious leader, a Pharisee. He had been incredibly zealous in the persecution of Christians in Jerusalem, essentially, but unsuccessfully, attempting to wipe out the fledgling Christian church in that city. Look at verses 1 through 2 of Acts chapter 9 with me. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. It seems that some of the persecuted Christians from Jerusalem had fled to Damascus and had joined together with that young Christian community that was emerging there in that ancient city. 
and Saul in his perverse zeal and hatred was not willing to settle for having driven most of the Christians from Jerusalem. And he continues relentlessly and obsessively to pursue these believers, even though they didn't pose any real threat to him. He was filled with a perverse zeal and hatred, and yet somehow it had gotten twisted around in his mind to where he came to the place to believe that his cause was somehow right and godly and righteous. So as preparing this sermon, Victor Hugo's novel, Les Miserables, came to mind. And the whole interaction, if you're familiar with that, either from the novel or the movie or the Broadway musical, which is the only musical I've ever been to on Broadway. Um, but with Jean Valjean, you know, who was imprisoned for stealing a loaf of bread when he was starving. And later on, through the graces act of a bishop and a number of other things, he became the benevolent mayor dearly beloved of a small town. But he realized at some point that the town's inspector, Javert, had been a brutal prison guard when he was in prison. And Javert, in this twisted way, began to pursue Jean Valjean under the pretext that he had somehow violated his parole. And Jean Valjean had to flee the city where he was mayor. And this pursuit went on for two full decades in the novel. Javert obsessed with capturing and somehow punishing Jean Valjean under this pretext. And there's a point in the story where as there's an uprising in the city, Jean Valjean has the opportunity to kill Javert. And instead he says, you're free, you may go. And Javert couldn't deal with that because he had, this had become all-consuming for him in a twisted way. And his sole purpose in life was pursuing Jean Valjean. And in the end, when his pursuit failed and he realized that Jean Valjean was offering him grace and life and forgiveness, he couldn't deal with it. And Javert commits suicide. As Saul, St. Paul was very much a Javert type of a figure, pursuing in some false, righteous, falsely righteous way these Christians, obsessed with seeing them brought back to Jerusalem and tried and killed in chains. And we find Saul diligently engaging in his wicked mission of persecution when suddenly everything changed dramatically supernaturally because Saul encountered the presence of the glorified Jesus. Now it's clear from the account that he didn't physically see Jesus Christ. Rather he saw what can accurately be described as a physically blinding, dazzling light. And he is struck to the ground senseless. The reality is that he has encountered the light of Christ's divine glory in whose presence no mortal can stand. And it brings to mind what St. John reports in his vision in Revelation 1.17 last week where he says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. It's also reminiscent of Moses on Mount Sinai and many other places in scripture as well. But Moses on Mount Sinai where God hid Moses in the cleft of the rock as his glory passed by 
because nobody, including Moses, could withstand the full presence of God's glory face to face and live. And Saul hears a voice as he's struck to the ground. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He still didn't make the connection until he hears these words. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Think of the shock. Think of the horror on Saul's part. God the Son reveals himself to Saul and calls him out for persecuting him. He reveals himself using his personal name, Jesus. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And the full weight of his errant mission must have fallen on him in a way that was almost unbearable. Because he was not merely persecuting people. He was not merely persecuting his fellow human beings, although he was persecuting them. But through his actions in persecuting the people of the way and in persecuting these early Christians, he was indeed persecuting God, who up to this point, somehow he thought in a false notion he was serving. And an attack, his attacks upon these believers is actually an attack on the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God himself. An attack on Jesus, whom God raised from the dead. And the same is true today for Christians all around the world, even at this very hour who are being persecuted, imprisoned, and even at this very hour dying for their faith. Yes, they are persecuted, but they actually, what is happening is Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, their Savior whose power and life flows through them is being persecuted. Even as Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my accounts. Saul was completely blinded by the light of God's presence. I thought about this this week, the closest thing I can equate it to from my own experience, which, which pales in comparison, no doubt, is when I worked in the construction industry and plumbing. There was a time I remember we were hanging gas, large gauge gas pipe in a ceiling in a building, and we had a pipe welder with us you know, doing arc welding, and I didn't get my face covering on quite fast enough, and I got flashed by the arc. I was probably about three feet from it. Has everyone ever, anyone here other than me ever been flashed? by a welder's arc. I see some folks shaking their head, yes. I mean, it was scary. I mean, because it was like, you can't see anything for a, for a second, and it was blinding. And I, I think of Saul, in light of that experience, I think that he had something like that, only exponentially much more powerful. And Saul was most likely in physical shock from the experience as well, this explains his not eating and drinking. Some folks through church history have said he was fasting for three days. Scripture doesn't seem to indicate that. And it seems that, and having worked with, as a chaplain with trauma patients, it seems like he was probably in shock physically and emotionally, mentally, and wasn't able to eat. 
But think how humbling this must all have been for this one with such great temporal power and the full weight of the Jewish elites in Jerusalem seemingly behind him and behind his actions. From the worldly perspective, he had immense power, and yet he struck powerless. Now, there's another person in this account who is an example of great godliness and obedience for us, and he is often overlooked, but he should not be. That is Ananias. Because Ananias was called by God in a dream to go to Saul. Try to put yourself in Ananias' shoes for a moment. Think about it. He'd heard the reports, apparently in some detail. He knew what Saul was about. He knew of Saul's persecution of the Christians in Jerusalem. And of course, understandably, Ananias was doing a double take. What did you say, God? Was that really you? Did you say that? You want me to what? Of course he was scared. Really scared. I mean, I thought about this this week as well, and the closest thing I could equate it to is if God spoke to you or me in a dream and told us to go and speak to an ISIS leader in Syria. I mean, that's the kind of situation he was in, dealing with an utter terrorist. Let's be honest. I would say, God, is that really you? <laughs> Did you really say to go and do that? Luke Timothy Johnson in his commentary on this says, human hesitancy is legitimate, but can be overturned by the command of God. And God does indeed confirm a second time to Ananias what he is to do. Look at verse 15 with me. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. So Ananias goes in obedience, probably still wondering if he would come back alive. He goes knowing that purpose for which God is raising up Saul as Paul, knowing that that purpose for Paul will be radically different than what his life had been to this point. Because God's call to Saul was not some sort of triumphalism. It was not a call for human power and human glory. It was a call that would lead to suffering and persecution and rejection and ultimately a martyr's death in Rome by beheading, preaching the very gospel that he had opposed for so long. So Saul now transformed as Paul would be God's chosen instrument. Look at verse 16. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. We look at this, we're familiar, familiar with this story, this true account. But may we never underestimate the power of God to change and transform someone. May we never underestimate the resurrection life of Jesus and the power of Jesus Christ in his resurrection to transform a person. How many of you here are familiar with the name Tom Terrence? Anybody? I see a few hands come up. Tom Terrence, 
um, lives in this region, and I actually heard him briefly speak at our diocesan synod a few years ago. He was actually standing right here in this pulpit. Tom Terrence, as a young man of the 1960s, was a white supremacist, an absolute avowed racist. If you've read any of the history of the civil rights movement, particularly in the Deep South in the early to mid-1960s, um, and I've done, I've done quite a bit of reading on that. Tom Terrence was right in the mix with all of those people, the folks that killed the civil rights workers in Neshoba County, Mississippi, and were, ex were shooting and executing civil rights workers and bombing buildings. He was right in the midst of all of that. He'd been involved with the bombing of a synagogue, and Terrence was in the process of trying to blow up the home of a Jewish businessman in Jackson, Mississippi. And his, the woman that was with him, his fellow terrorist, she was actually killed in a shootout with federal authorities. Terrence was severely wounded, recovered, and was sentenced to 35 years in prison. Now, Tom Terrence grew up in church in Alabama as a boy, and he somehow, like Paul in this twisted way, believed that he was a Christian. And even as he engaged in his terrorism, and the horrible things that he was involved in. He believed that he was fighting for God and for his country. But he was shaken awake by the words of Matthew 16, 26. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? And through the ministry of prison chaplains, through the ministry of African-American inmates who had come to know Christ, and through a Jewish lawyer, Tom Terrence was radically transformed. And folks, I got to tell you, he's the real deal. He's not a faker. He's not someone who's masquerading to make money. He's the real deal. And he was incredibly convicted. And was simply not convicted about hating non-whites but convicted by God's command that he love others, even his enemies. And Terrence went on after being freed from prison in 1976, early because of the advocacy of a Jewish lawyer who'd seen the transformation that had come to pass in his life. And he's been an advocate and still works diligently for racial reconciliation. In this region, he's also co-pastored a multiracial church at one time served as an interim pastor at an Asian-American church in the region. I don't think anyone in the early 1960s would have thought that Tom Terrence would become an advocate and a catalyst for racial reconciliation. Don't underestimate the power of God to transform someone. So Ananias goes to the house where Paul is still recovering. And he lays hands on him and his eyes are healed from the blindness that had happened when the bright light appeared to him. Paul is also baptized by Ananias. You know, Scripture doesn't have a whole lot else to say about Ananias. He was not a man of earthly status or, or prominence. But what a way to be remembered in the Word of God. Fidelity to God. Risky obedience, which God sees and honors. What a way to be remembered. 
And now Paul has encountered him and radically transformed by the risen and glorified Jesus. And he is now called, as I've already mentioned, to be those very things, to be the very kind of person that he so vehemently opposed. And now he's even fully and publicly and openly incorporated into the visible public community of believers. Brothers and sisters, only God can do something like this. Only God. As we hear of God's power, God's incredible power to transform, let us never sell God short. I know we get that here at some level, but I'll be the first to confess, I don't always get it here. Because it's beyond my comprehension to really grasp that God could radically transform that person or that indi- another individual. And I think we all struggle with that in reality at times. May we not sell God short. May we not sell short God's grace and the reach of his power to set people free. I think there's also a sobering reminder for us today as we conclude in Paul's example to all of us, certainly different circumstances in a different context, but the principles that I want to mention here, I think, apply. Reflect on who he was before and then in Christ Listen to what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, if you want to turn there. Philippians chapter 3, verses 2 through 8. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ especially in this country, especially in the culture in which we live where there's a lot of affluence around us. May we never start to think that earthly temporal power or wealth or employment or societal status somehow puts us above other people. And may we not forget that the same resurrection power of Jesus who dwells and flows through every one of us who knows Jesus flows through every believer in the world, even that person in a remote village who's never had a single day of former schooling, of formal schooling, who can't read or can't write. And God just might use that people in incredible, those people in incredibly powerful ways, not only to touch their world, but possibly even to touch you and me, and that we can be taught and we will learn from them. May we never sell God short. May we never doubt his power to transform. May we never doubt the reality of his power flowing through 
every person who knows Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, regardless of their temporal status and station in life. And may we be quick to recognize that any good that is accomplished for the Lord is because of the Lord. It is by his grace. It is by his mercy. It is by his powers. He chooses and wills to use vessels like you and me. And we have no reason to boast in the flesh. We have no reason to boast in self. But whatever gain I had, I counted loss for the sake of Christ. Let us pray. Father, thank you for the reach of your grace, for the life-giving, life-transforming power of Jesus, the resurrection power of Jesus, and that no person is beyond the reach of your transforming power and grace. So, Lord, give us your eyes. Give us your heart. Lord, as so we see the world and we see people around us and people across the globe through your eyes. And may we see ourselves through your eyes as well, sinners saved by grace, that we would count all the stuff and the status and the privilege of this world as lost for the sake of Christ so that, Lord, we would be positioned for you to use us for no vain glory, for the praise and honor of your name. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.